Boker Tov. Today's daf is daf Pei eighty. Uh, we pick up at the Mishnah on the bottom of Ayntanamud Beth, and um, we move to a uh, slightly different topic. I mean, again, it's interesting how this parak, of course, has mostly been devoted to its name, Yisur Yuxin, but going a little back and forth between some um, classic, what I would call Kiddushin topics. So the most um, proximate Mishnah was about somebody who um, who, uh, who gives a uh, shaliach the right to marry off his daughter. And then the question is, whose Kiddushin came pray- took place first? His or his uh, shaliachs? Or if she did it, hers or her, sh- her shaliachs? Now, we get back to um, like I would say a theme from two Mishnayot ago, which is somebody who testifies that his child is a mom there, and is he believed or not, and here we get to somebody also testifying about his family and whether or not he's believed. So let's take a look at this Mishnah. I had this question from yesterday also. Is there any element of self-incrimination in all of these uh, questions about whether somebody can testify about it? Uh, some of them could be. I mean, the fact that a child is a mom there is more incriminating your wife than incriminating yourself, um, but, um, but that doesn't seem to be the primary concern. Actually, in some of those cases where you're not allowed to self-incriminate, your testimony is not taken to um, to commit, it's like to sort of convict yourself, but it is sometimes it's split the principle of Pogina di Bure, and we actually can take an, the element of your testimony that affects other people. So the issue here of dismissing it is not because of self-incrimination. It's just that it's not sufficient testimony. So let's take a look at the Mishnah. A man and his wife went to a faraway, uh, you know, uh, to, 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 uh, to a faraway place. And then he came back after many years with his wife and many children. This woman is the wife I left with. You know, maybe it's 20 years later. People don't recognize her, right? But this is the wife that I left with. The And these are the children that she gave birth to over in Medina Fiyam. Um, she does not have to prove any, bring any evidence about his wife. Now, what Rashi says this means is he doesn't have to prove that she is of good yichus, because presumably that was established here when he married her, and presumably also what part of the Kiddush is that even if maybe we don't fully recognize her, um, he is believed since he left with a wife and came back with a wife, he's believed to say it's the same woman, but also he doesn't have to bring any proof that these are her children, and since she was known to have had acceptable yichus, the children also have acceptable yichus. So the Gemara is going to discuss why is exactly he believed to say that these are her children. The Gemara is going to say that the children basically are sort of still young and are cleaving to her. Karuch literally wrapped around her. So it's clear that they're still like he's, you know, mothering to the children and therefore the presumption is that they are hers. Um, which is an interesting fact because one could imagine other potential possible scenarios. Um, now it's continued. Uh, adult children also have behavior violence. That's true, too. Maybe they're getting in fights. <laughs> 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 right, but that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, okay. Um, now, Mesa, now let's say he says, actually, my wife died when we were overseas. But these are the children she gave birth to. Maybe maybe He has to be proof that these children are his wife's children. I don't know how we would do it. Some birth certificate. Somebody would come and testify that these are his wife's children. But then he does not have to be proof about his wife, that his wife is in the Yuchas because that was presumed when he married her here and he left here. So once he presumes that, can prove that these are his wife's children, they're also understood to be miyuchas. Um, um, okay. 
let's say he comes back, he left single and comes back. And he says, I got married uh, over where, you know, where I was in this uh, faraway uh, country. And this is the woman I married, and these are her children. So the children are presumed to be the woman's. Again, in some similar scenario where they're acting in a way that shows that they treat her as the mother. So that we can presume, that they are her children. But we don't know her yichus. And we don't know, you know, maybe he's a Kohen and she's a Grusha or whatever. Some type of a Yichus question. So therefore, if we want to establish that the kids are, you know, of good Yichus or that they're not Cholowim or any type of normal sort of determination we would have to make when somebody's marrying a woman, we would still have to now go ahead and address that situation and bring proof about her Yichus. Um, now, let's say he says... Um, uh, I married a woman in when I was in a faraway country, and these are her children. Okay, in that case, there's no behavior of the children that proves who the mother is, because the mother is dead. In that case, he has to prove proof number one that the woman he married was miuchas, and b if he wants that status to be presumed to apply to the children, he has to bring a proof that the children are also that woman's children. Okay? So basically, if he's here with the woman and the children, and the children are acting in a particular way, then that creates a presumption that they're her children. Alright? If the children aren't here, then he has to prove that they're, that they're her children, if he, in terms of yichos issues. Okay? For her, similarly, if she, he got married here, then we knew her yichos. If he got married overseas, we don't know her yichus, and he would have to prove her yichus. So the presence of the children with the mother creates a presumption that they're her children. When they're not together with the mother, they have to be proven to be her children. And the fact that he got married to this woman here, then we know the yichus. If he got married to the woman overseas, we don't know the yichus, and that would have to be proven. Okay, so the one thing that really has to be addressed here is how do we presume that these are her children? So that's what the Gemara focuses on. All these cases where she's with the children and we presume they're her children is when they are literally like intertwined with her, wrapped around her. Okay, so basically it's clear that the way they relate to her is as a mother, that creates that presumption. Does, does his claim play any role here, or if, if he dies and they all... Oh, that's, and then she's just... Oh, I, that's an interesting point. And people recognize the woman, right, let's say, I mean... Even they don't. The woman just says, I was married to this man... And you know, particularly regarding the children, because the presumption apparently is supported or created by right. behavior. Uh, right, that's so a good point. So maybe their behavior itself creates that presumption that she's the mother. Interesting question, but if she's dead, maybe there's, maybe we could presume that, that uh, those are her children, but how would we know who the father is, you know, mm-hmm. right? But you're right. Mm-hmm. Presumably mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. behavior of Kruch and Acharas suffices you know, I mean, or it shouldn't require his claim, presumably any claim with that behavior, whether hers or hers, but that's Although a good question. Perhaps with his claim, the, the, the bar for the behavior is lower. Right, that's the, the question. What if, what if it were her claim? Meaning, just observed behavior without any framing, presumably, would not be a significant, right? But if it were her claim, these are my kids, and they're acting in a particular way, is it, is it the fact that it's his claim that gives it more weight than hers? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I'm a, so let's take a look at the Gemara. Tana Rabbanan. So I married a woman. Maybe Rael Abanim. So he has to prove the woman's status because we don't know. You know, he just married this woman. We don't know anything about her. 
but if he's here with her and small kids, we don't have to prove anything about the kids. Now, if he, even if he's here with kids, if the kids are adults, again, I don't know how big is adults, but adults in a way that their behavior would not make it so obvious that they are, you know, being, that, 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 that she's their mother, um, you know, maybe that she's their stepmother, who knows, just because they get into fights with her doesn't prove one way or the other way, right? So, um, anyway, the more evidence of their behavior is when they are small children. Of course, the interesting question is, if they're adults, why don't you just ask them, Right? So that gets similar to Doe's question. Know. What? How do they know who their mother is? Um, yeah, but I guess if they could say for the past 10 years she's been acting as her mother and they testify to behavior that had we observed it as minors, we would, that would have been the behavior of Kruchinach Reha. You know, I don't know. It is a good question. You know, but... Um, but anyways, but if so, this is similar to this idea of kuchinachara. Only small children that are really clearly uh, being mothered by her um, are the ones we presume are hers. But um, when is this true? Be'ishachat. If he basically uh, comes back with one woman, or he makes a claim about one woman, let's say he basically says. Uh, I married two women in Medina Tayam, or he left with two women and he came back with one. Okay, um, in that case, maybe the fact that there are these small children that are wrapping themselves around this woman that he came back with um, and she's mothering them um, is um, is not sufficient because we could say that these are her, uh, well, stepchildren, right? That he married two wives, one of them died, and of course if she's the remaining wife and these are the children, she's going to take them, take, them, take, take, take them over. Of course, one does wonder whatever happened about like Hapesha Asar. He came back with one woman. He could have said, I only married one woman. He says he married two, and these are the children of the woman that, I'm, that, I'm, that is still alive. Right? Presumably he could be believed because he could have said it was only one woman. You know, I only married one woman. So, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't have a Pesha or maybe we know that he left with two women. Well, right. right, that gets back also to that question. What are the children saying? Exactly, yeah. All right. So, I'm So now we're going to focus in on what level standard of proof is this issue that the children are karucha chareha, are intertwined with her, wrapped around her. How much of that we can we really fully presume that they are her children? So, I'm that's only when it comes to sanctified things outside the base of Mikdash, in the, in the borders, meaning out, not in the temple precinct, meaning Truma. So if he was a Kohen, then we will presume that these are her children and his children and that they're Miyuchas and all of that to allow them to eat Truma. Aval, the Yuchsin, lo. But when it comes to question about can we now assume that, let's say, his children from this woman is, uh, is, uh, are, are daughters, and can he marry this daughter off to a Kohen? Remember, we have been discussing until now a higher standard of evidence and research, that you would go back four generations of mothers, if you remember that, in order to marry a woman off to a Kohen. So here, if all we have is the presumption of their behavior, that might be enough to eat truma, but that's not enough to prove that they're her children for Yichel's purposes, for whom now that they can marry. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan says, "Afilu biyuchsin." No, even for yuchsin purposes, we would, uh, w- you know, this behavior is evidence enough that they really are her children, and that works even for this higher standard of yichus. 
the Azra of Yochanan Taimei. Now we know Rabbi Yochanan goes according to his reasoning, so as we're going to see, Rabbi Yochanan accepts you know, what, we, what we're going to call a chazaka, a presumption of facts based on observed behavior, we're going to accept that as a very high standard of proof. And even for very, very weighty issues, and yuchsin would be included. Where do we see that? The Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi says the name of Rabbi Yochanan, Malkin ala chazakot, you would give lashes based on a chazaka, <coughs> and soklin v'sorfin ala chazakot, and you would actually give, uh, you know, the uh, capital punishment. You would stone somebody or burn somebody because of a presumption. The ain't surfing true ala chazakot, but you would not, the one, you could burn a human being, you gotta love this concept, surfing, <laughs> but you wouldn't burn truma if there was a chazaka that the truma became tameh, you wouldn't burn it based on a chazaka. Now that seems completely bizarre. So let's first, before we get to the truma case, let's first worry about the first two cases. Okay. Malkin ala chazakot, what would be the case you would give lashes based on a presumption? Now I want to say something about the word chazaka. Chazaka sometimes means, well, chazaka can mean something in Baba Basra, which we're not even going to get to, but chazaka can sometimes mean status quo, like, you know, somebody had a status quo, like we had it the other day, about being a Nara, when did she become a Bogaret, so we'll assume that she hasn't become a Bogaret, or if we see that she became a Bogaret, we'll assume it came at a later time rather than an earlier time, because her status quo before that had been a Nara. The mikvah had a chazaka of having a full amount of water in it, we don't know when it lost the water, so, right, maybe we're going to assume uh, the chazaka assumes that it happened later rather than earlier. Um, or, this vessel had a chazaka of being tame. We dunked it in the mikvah. We don't know if the mikvah was kosher. We'll assume it retains its chazaka. That's a status quo. There's a different type of way the word chazaka is used, which is a presumption of facts based on observed behavior. So, for example, chazaka in isha If a woman say, claims to her husband, you divorced me, we take that as a good evidence that she was divorced, because there's a chazaka that she would not be brazen enough to say that to her husband if she was lying. Okay, so based on certain presumptions we have about how people act, we can infer, presume, certain realities, certain, you know, so here the chazaka is, kids who are wrapped around this woman that this guy is coming back with, presumably she's their mother. Okay, that's a chazaka. Okay, so that's, so what he is saying is when we can establish certain facts based on presumptions of behavior, okay, that can give us so much of a sense that that are the facts in question that we would actually, you know, give um, malchus and uh, the death penalty as a basis of it. So let's take a look at what those examples are. Okay, Malkin ala chazakos k'rav Yehuda, like Rav Yehuda, damar Rav Yehuda, huchzakanida b'shechenoteha. If a woman has been established amongst her neighbors as being a nida, she wears certain garments that she would only wear when she's a nida, you know, she's saying certain things to her friends, okay, and now that there's this presumption among her, like, friends, her circle of friends, oh yeah, she's a nida now, she'll be going to the mikvah in a few days, and that's the presumption that has arisen based on things she's been saying and ways she's been acting. In that case, if we saw that the husband had sex with her during this time, we would give him lashes. And we should give her lashes too, because of transgressing the prohibition of having sex when the woman is a nida. Even though there's no evidence, right, nobody checked her bedika cloth or whatever, or looked at her underwear or, you know, or her, cloth, or her sheets, right, but just the fact that this is a presumption now that's arisen by ways she's been acting, that establishes it as a matter of fact. 
um, that similarly, um, you would give uh, stoning and, and, and burning, execute somebody based on a chazaka. Let's say a man and a woman, or and with a young boy and a young girl, and they all grow up in the same house. Nobody was at their wedding. Nobody saw a marriage certificate. Nobody was at the hospital when she was giving birth. Everybody just looks at them and presumes that they're all a family. Okay? In that case, uh, if basically the young, you know, the, 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 the presumed father has sex with the presumed daughter, or the presumed son with the presumed mother, all these types of cases, you would all, you know, we, we consider it incest and we'd give them the death penalty for that. Wow. Even though there's no evidence that anybody is related, it's just the presumption we have that they're living together as a family. Now, yeah, this is a big deal, right? But we can assume certain presumed facts, you know, take them into evidence, you know, because that is the way in which this is perceived within the community. Now, I'll give you somewhat of a par- first of all, the important point is that this is not a standard of proof that the actual act was performed. If you have a chazaka, it's not the same as saying, well, you know, chazaka, that this was the guy, that he murdered this guy, so we'll go ahead and kill him. No, no, no. You know, the evidence of proof that the act the transgression was performed, that needs to be two witnesses. The Gemara even gives a case of somebody running after somebody with a knife, like, you know, saying he's going to kill him, and they run into a barn, and, you know, you, you, the witnesses come in two seconds later, and they see the guy on the floor with stab wounds who's, like, mortally wounded, and the other person with a knife over him with blood dripping from the knife, and you can't go ahead, and that's not sufficient evidence that he's the murderer, because nobody actually witnessed the murder, okay? So that actually is the, the act of the, of the crime has to be of the sin has to be directly witnessed it's the presumption of facts around, you know that were already established ahead of time who's the father who's the son this woman's Anita who's this who's that there right we don't have to get like birth certificates and somebody to testify in the hospital that this was the mother as long as there's a sort of it's established within the community these presumptions that is assumed to be like that, that assumes that those things are facts which is very strange because at the end of the day you're still going to murder them based on something you don't know for sure right for any uh, any case would you have to prove that the person is Jewish and the Jesus right. But I mean, that would be that would deconstruct the whole system. Wait, wait, one more time. What do you mean? You're saying you're, you're surprised that uh, that we assume that they're Jewish, oh, you mean, but we assume it to be right. You do that in every case of any crime. Right, like how do you know somebody was Jewish? Yeah. Right, how do you right exactly? So yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, you know, you want to imagine like it would be impossible to run society if you had to prove every fact and evidence, and that's part of this issue. A similar case is the issue of Eid Echad. We say Eid Echad is never bisurin. So the so Rambam says. Let's say one witness testifies this piece of meat in front of you is chaylef. And then, so we would assume it's chaylef, forbidden fat. And then somebody comes to eat it. And when he says, don't eat it, it's chaylef. And he says, I don't care. And he eats it anyway. We'd give that person lashes. Even though the presumption of the status of the meat was only through one witness. Right? If, he, if the act had been done only with one witness, we wouldn't give him lashes. But we can establish that. Now, Rambam actually says that idea of Eid and Bisurin, and then we would actually, the court would prosecute based on that if an act occurred later. Rambam says that's only um, for Malchus, not for Misa. So I'm trying to think about what a case might be um, about a Misa case, but uh, I don't know. 
what would be a case of Misa? Um, that would presume about a particular status of an object. Maybe something relating to Shabbos. I'd have to think about it. Anyway, but anyway, but the Ramam says like that would only be for a Malka's case, not for a Misa case. Um, here we're saying it even for a capital punishment. Because here it's not just one witness says it, and we believe one person, but we didn't presume it already. Here we're dealing with cases with, as a society, we have certain presumptions about mm-hmm. the facts. You know, and that creates, and that makes them considered to be facts for purposes of, for all, for other halachot. Okay, even for halachot that will translate into the death penalty. Are, yes? If you ever read a, um, what do they call it, when you, when you file a lawsuit? Um, yeah. So there's this whole preamble about the pages and pages and pages about, you know, establishing the jurisdiction and establishing uh, all uh-huh. these things that, you know, are pretty much, I mean, they're all standard. Right, all right. <laughs> um, but if it's not part of the document, then, some, then it could be challenged. Challenge, so I see. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, when I was on a grand jury, one thing we had to do was to establish that the crime was committed in the Southern District of New York. Right, right. Uh, even though it seemed obvious, right. we had to actually make that. Because we have to assume the jurisdiction. Yeah. Right. Okay, so that, because we will establish it so much as a proof for issues like of the death penalty, the point is, presumably, will it be good enough for Yosin as well. Okay? Now, all that makes a lot of sense. The only question is, then why can't we burn truth as a result of it? Yeah. So let's take a look. Okay? Um, but first, we're going to have a story. I'm a Rebbe Shimon ben Padi, I'm a Rebbe Yosho, but maybe Mishim Bar Kapara. Ma'isa bi'isha Shabbat Yerushalayim, a woman came to Jerusalem, fatinok morkavlak tefeha, and she had an infant on her shoulders. Oh, actually, here you see, though, here's a case where the husband isn't testifying, and presumably it sounds like the mother isn't testifying, right? So I, that, that exactly speaks to the case you mentioned. Vigdi lost so, and she raised him in the house. And then, after he became an adult, or whatever, after, you know, uh, bar mitzvah, um, ubala, they had sex with one another. And both of them were brought to court, and they were both executed. Okay, it was a mother and a son having sex. Not that we had any evidence that this was her son. Here's the phrase of Okay, because he was like, you know, she was raising him, and she was, you know, and therefore, we have a presumption that she was the son. So there's a good case. She's not claiming anything. The husband is claiming anything, right? I mean, but because that presumption gets created, that becomes then accepted as evidence. Did you want to say something? I know. Like, right. Intertwined with her, right? One does wonder about that. This would be a problem for Woody Allen. Good point. The aim, right, I mean, it does raise the fact that there are realities of stepchildren and other Mm -hmm. types of children. And again, maybe if somebody actually said that at the outset, by the way, you should know this is my stepson, it would never have developed into a chazaka. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you don't say anything and you act in a certain way and everybody, you know, develops these presumptions around that, right? I mean, there's like, I'm thinking about something like, you know, that, 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 that TV show, The Americans, or there's the other shows, about like a family moves into a place, but they're really all like, you know, spies or whatever, they're just faking it and it's not really a family or something. Anyway, but so if you say something, the chazaka never develops. But if you don't say something and you act in a certain way and that leads to certain presumptions, then that becomes accepted as fact. Okay, so then the Gemara says like this. So all that makes good sense and that would work for Yuchsin. But how about this thing about Truma? Um... Okay, the ain't surfing Truma al-Chazakot. You would burn Truma... Meaning that there's a presumption it became Tameh, you would now burn it, even if you don't know for certain that it became Tameh. Rabbi Yochanan Amar ain't surfing, you do not. The Azu the Tamayu, they go according to their reasonings, sit none. 
תינוק שנמצא בצד האיסה או בצד בידו. You're an infant that's by a, uh, some dough, and, uh, you know, by a dough that, and he has a little piece of dough in his hand. So, I'm going to read this Tosus' way. Tosus' way is the presumption here, the thing we don't know for a fact, is that he touched the dough. Because maybe some adult came and gave him a little piece of the dough. Okay, we don't know exactly. But we presume that the infant took the piece of dough himself from the larger, you know, amount of dough. The question is the larger dough, not the dough in the infant's hands, but the larger dough that you're about to bake into challah or donuts or whatever you're going to make out of it, has that become tamay or not? Did the infant touch it? You see that he has a little piece in his hand. Yeah, so we're going to, so, so that's going to be also, Rashi says, we know he touched the dough, the presumption is that he's tamay. Tosa says, we know he's tamay, the, presu- the presumption that we don't know, you know, but that we're presuming is that he touched the dough. Okay, the reason Tosa says we know he became tamay is apparently because he's been being held by his mother, his mother just gave birth, although again, I don't know if he has dough, he presumably he can't really be <laughs> just an infant. But anyway, there's a, some, pres- you know, we, we assume the mother is tamay, she's a need or she just gave birth and she's been holding him and nursing him, so that's how Tosa says we actually know he's tamay. Rashi says, no, we just presume he's tamay, we we know he touched the dough, but one of these things is presumed to be known, the other is to be, is, is presumed. Okay, one of these is known, one of these is presumed. Um, Remer mitaher, Remer says the dough is tahor, the chachamim mitamim, the chachamim say it's tameh. Mitnei shedarko shotinok mitapeach. Why the Chachamim say that it's Tameh? Because an infant will normally, you know, like, uh, touch things, like the word Tefach is a hand breath. Yeah. You know, will like pat on things, he'll yeah. touch anything in his way, and therefore, if he has the dough in his hand, presumably he touched the dough. I'm gonna read it Tosis' way. Okay? Vashi says it means the Tapeach means he probably goes around and he fools around in the, uh, in the dung heap and touch some Tameh Sheretz or something. Okay, Zavinimba. My time is the Rebbe Mayer. So what's the reason for Rebbe Mayer? The Rebbe Mayer says that the, we presume the dough is Tahor. Um, it's true. The majority of infants like pat around. But there's some that don't. The and the is a of being tahor. Okay, the smoch So you take the minority possibility that the dough, that the tino did not touch the dough. And you add it to the, to the status. This is a different chazaka. This is the chazaka status quo, not the chazaka of presumed behavior. You add it to the status quo of the dough, and Israel Eruba, and that counteracts the rove. And because it counteracts the rove, you now have like a safek, and presumably we're dealing in a case of a Rishut HaRabim, so a Safek Tumas Tahor, or even if it's a Rishut HaYachid, we'll see in a minute, when do we say that a doubtful Tumas Tameh in Rishut HaYachid, that's only if there's somebody there who could be asked. There's Yeshbo Das Lishael. But if the infant is the only one there and he's not, not around to be asked, like he couldn't give us any information, so then we say Safek Tahor. So Rebineo makes it a Safek and therefore it's Tahor. But the Chachamim say, no, it's like it's, we assume that it happened and it's Tameh, even in the Rishut Rabbi. Now, how do you know you wouldn't burn it in that case? Okay? So the Gemara says like this. Um, also, uh, I'm sorry. Rabbanan and the rabbis would say back. No, miyuta commands the lesser dummy. The minority possibility is not given any weight. And we, we basically um, say, and, and therefore we go by the majority. Majority, the kids touch and, and think that they touch the dough. So it's the robe that he touched the dough against the chazak of the status quo of the dough. And rubadif and robe trumps the chazaka. Now, how do we know that you would not burn the dough, according to Rabbi Yochanan? Because that's what this is coming to prove. That even Rabbi Yochanan, who goes by Chazakot of presumptions, would not burn the dough. 
By the way, before we get to that, I should say that Rashi already connects this to Rabbi Meir's general position that Chayshinan Limiyuta. We know in general that Rabbi Meir says if there's a minority possibility about something, we have to be concerned about it. We can't just act and presume everything goes by the majority. There's also a real minority possibility and therefore we can't ignore it. So that here as well, he gives weight to the miyut, and therefore you add that with the chazaka, the status quo of the dough, and you presume that the dough is still tahor, or at least it's a safek, and because it's a safek, safek versus harabim is tahor. Somebody told me the other day this idea that, uh, that she knows somebody who's like this, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever medical researcher, you know, and he knows all the statistics of these, uh, you know, diseases. Like it's one in a million, you know, one in a hundred million or whatever. But anyway, this person came down with something that, like, you know, it, it was extremely rare. So this person said, "When you're in the numerator, n- numerator, it doesn't matter what the denominator is. <laughs> if you're the one in the million, it doesn't matter that the denominator is the million." So that's what Rebbe Mayer says. If there's a small possibility, we have to look at that possibility. We can't ignore it. And here, therefore, it combines with the status quo of the dough, and therefore, uh, it's uh, you know, it's a suffix at least, and the suffix in which it's a rabim is tahor. Where the chumins say you ignore that small possibility, you go by rove, you presume the dough is tamay. Yes. Are these formulas like generalized or pulled out anywhere? Like, oh, how do we decide between a chazaka and a rope? Yes. Yes. So the first parak of Chulin um, is a central discussion about this, about all these different presumptions of how to deal with cases of doubt. Rove, chazaka, um, you know, Karo, Mir, all those things, Mir Amatsu, Ein Amatsu. The first is presu- the first described, like right in the beginning of Hulin, it basically asks that question. Ruba Vichazaka, which is Adif. Okay. You know, so it has all of, uh, all of those issues. I, I was joking once, I said I was going to give a series of classes, a, a course called Living with Doubt. And it would all be about Rove and Chazaka and Sexega, <laughs> which is actually, but if you think about it, um, it's true because Basically, what these are saying is, a lot of life, we don't know the facts. We have to just navigate without knowing for certain what the facts are, right? So that's what these are here to do, is to tell you how you have to go ahead and make decisions, even if you don't really know. Anyway, so the Gemara says, now, according to the Chumim, we're going to say it's a presumption that they touch, he touched the dough. Are you going to burn the dough? You would burn true. Now, this is ironic, because it was the same Rishlokish from before that, remember, by the case about who do you presume are the children, that would say that would not be a good enough standard of proof for Yuchsin. For Yuchsin, you need a higher standard of proof. If Yuchsin said, no, so, you know, Chazak is good enough, you would kill a guy based on Chazaka, so it's good enough for Yuchsin. But here, when it comes to the Truma, they reverse themselves. Reish Lakish says you would burn the Truma based on this presumption. And Reb Yochanan is going to say, Reb Yochanan Lamar, This is not good enough to burn Truma. Now, here now, things are beginning to make sense. Because when we initially presented it, Rabbi Yochanan said, if you have a chazaka, that's enough to go ahead and burn a person, but not enough to burn truma. It's like, that's crazy, right? Obviously, the standard of proof should be higher for executing somebody than for burning truma. But here what it sounds like is that he's really not saying you cannot have a chazaka that's good enough to burn truma. He's just saying this 
isn't good enough. Right? That's the language. Ein zo chazaka This is not good enough. And if you think about it, that's the case. It's not a case like people have been living together for 10 years and we presume this is the mother and these are the father and these are the kids. It's not like... It's not, it's, not only is it not a good high enough, the same standard of proof, it's not the same qualitative reality. In one, there was a presumption that got developed, a perception in society. Oh, everybody knows now that she's a nida. Everybody knows this is a family, these are the parents and these are the kids. This wasn't that case. There was no, you know, just the kid touched something and you wanted to know, did he touch it or not? It wasn't like this presumption that developed. And it's also like there's no, that it's a question mark over it. Did he touch it? I don't know. Did he not? Probably he did. This is more like the question of did the person commit murder, right? Did this act take place? It's not the question of a presumption of a status. It's a question of knowing whether the act took place. So this is really a very, very different case. It's not that we do, we by truma we have a higher standard. It's just that this scenario is a different scenario. And therefore, it's not enough to burn truma for it. Okay? And therefore, the Gemara is going to say there are scenarios that Rabbi Yochanan would burn truma. That's the next question. What would be a good enough chazaka for Rabbi Yochanan that you would burn truma? What would be a scenario that would be qualitatively better? So, like we thought in the Mishnah. You got some dough in the house. Or to the Tanya. Um, and there are shratim, you know, impure uh, rodents that if they were to touch the dough would make the dough impure. And there are uh, frogs which actually even uh, are not impure. And they're hopping around in the dough or in the house. And you find a little leg of one animal in your dough. Okay? In now, is it a frog leg? Okay, and then it's a delicacy, although it's not kosher. But anyway, uh, or is it a shrutsa? So is it a leg that makes the dough tame or not? Okay. And there you would go by the majority. Okay. So there, again, that's a little bit different. You know something touched. You don't know the identity of the thing that touched. You're going to judge it based on rope. Even that, I think, is not the same level as the case of a family growing up in the community, that there develops a perception in the community that this is all a family. Here, there's no general perception that developed. Okay. But you're making a decision based on rope. You know something touched. You have to figure out what its identity is. You'll decide based on rope. So bottom line is, it is not that Truma has a higher standard than executing people. Okay? It's just that some cases of Truma are more doubtful. You don't even know if the kid touched the dough. It's different than when you know he touched the dough and you're trying to figure out what exactly the identity is. Different level, you know, there are different scenarios. Okay? They're not all the same scenario. All right. So now the Gemara says, um, it's actually interesting about the little, uh, what do you call it, about the little leg of something in the dough. Tosos in a number of places has a question about how they're allowed to eat honey because he says we have all of the bees' legs in the honey. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't that just make it, you know, it's like you can eat the bees' leg or you can give Tom. Raise a very, it leads to very interesting, you know, justifications for that. Nowadays, I, I, I mean, I've never seen an animal leg in honey. They, I'm sure they do a very good job of sifting it out. What? 
still doing it, yeah, but I'm sure in the past they weren't able to do it <laughs> to that degree. Okay. So that, anyway, the Gemara says like this. Tiny Yochanan, we took it like Rabbi Yochanan. Shneidvarim ain't ben dat mishael. There are two things that the person, the, the person there did not have the ability to, to respond to questions. Because to say a safek in Rishut HaYachid is tamay is only if the person who was present was able to respond to questions. We learned that out from Nita. How do we know that a safek tum in Rishut HaYachid is tamay? A woman goes in private with a man, and we presume until we bring, until we do the whole sota ritual, but if there was all the warning leading up to it, that they might have had sex until we go ahead and, you know, can do the Sota ritual to change that presumption. So therefore, from that, we apply that somehow strangely to normal cases, to ritual to Matara, and say that if something is in a private space, a secluded space, and there's a question, we presume it was Tamei, but only like the case of Nida, only if there was somebody there that could have been asked about it. Okay? So it says there are two cases that are not like that, and we should have said that it's Suffolk Tahor. And nevertheless, the sages made it as if there w- the person could have been asked, and therefore we ruled that it was Tamei. Tinoch, one was the case of the infant. So by the way, you already see, technically that infant should have been a case of Safek, should have been Tahor, but we're going to treat it as if the child could have been asked, and therefore we're going to make it Tamei. That's why we're not going to burn the dough, because in principle that actually should have been Tahor. The ode acheret, and another one. Tino kadamer. We said the case of the infant. Vod acheret, magi. What's the other one? Isa betoch habayis. The tanagolin who maskin tameim sham. There's dough in the house, and there's chickens, and there is impure liquid, liquid that was tamei. Okay, some wine that became tamei or something. Vinimsu nikurim nikurim beisa, and you see little peck holes in the dough. So the question is, you know what happened with the dough? The chicken was pecking away at it. But did the chicken have the tummy liquid in its mouth when it was pecking away at it, and therefore the tummy liquid touched the dough? Okay. Um, and again, here you see, like Rabbi Yochanan, you're not going to burn the dough. I'm Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, okay, and the, even though they are, should have been a safek and it should have been tahor, because nobody could have been asked about it, we're going to be machmer and say tamay. So here are cases where technically we should have said safek tahor, we're going to say tamay, we're not going to burn it, but it doesn't mean that in truma we'll never burn the dough based on presumptions. It just means here the presumptions are not weighty enough to burn the dough. That's only by clear liquids. Let's say they were red liquids. It was wine. If, 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 the, uh, if the chicken pecked away with it with some wine in its uh, beak, then you would know. You'd see little wine drops in the dough. So therefore, if you don't see the wine drops, you're no, you know that you're okay. So the Gemara says, Maybe the wine touched the dough and the chicken ate the dough that had the wine drop on it. But the wine had first touched the dough and made the dough tamay. You get the sequence? Okay? So the Gemara says, um, You know, this thing I heard from the great one, meaning Rabbi Yeshua uh, ben Levi, but I didn't hear the explanation, right, which is why it should matter what color it is, because why aren't we concerned that even if it's like a red color, maybe the chicken ate the dough. But, lo shanu el I'm sorry, I'm sorry, excuse me, upeirusho lo shama, um, uh, but you didn't hear the explanation, and here's the explanation. Okay, so 
This would only be if it was a like clear liquid that the uh, that the uh, face of an infant could be seen in it. But if it was somehow cloudy liquid, no. Now I'm not sure again how does that work. Um, oh, because Rashi says Rashi says if it was it's not really one minute. Yeah, Rashi says it's not really about red versus white. It's that if it is red and clear, then meaning clear, not transparent, but clear like un, you know, un, uh, like uh, un, um, what? Yeah, no sediments or whatever. Then it could have gotten fully absorbed into the uh, into the dough. But if it was cloudy, then it would have stayed at the top of the dough. I still don't really understand this because even if it wouldn't have fully been absorbed in the dough, why don't we assume that? Why aren't we still concerned that it touched the dough and that the chicken ate it? So. Yeah, I'm not really, I don't really get that. Anyway, the basic point is that if there's evidence that, uh, you know, you might not, you might be able to prove that it wasn't there if you would say that had they actually, had the chicken really had the liquid in its mouth, we would have seen evidence of it remaining in the dough. And since we didn't, you know, that could be proof that it did not eat it. But bottom line is, normal chazaka, a presumption based on, you know, we don't know for sure, but it's just a perception and a presumption that we have in society, right, that will establish things as facts that then you could actually go ahead and execute somebody for, okay, and that's very different than, but not all cases rise to that level. Some of these truma cases, you know, it's not strong enough to lead to a clear presumption of what those realities are, and those would be treated differently. Okay, very important in terms of those issues of Chazaka. Yes, Charlie. Um, one thing that they did not discuss in terms of Raya or Chazaka is possible of written documentation. Well, no, that would be real proof. I mean, the question would be what would constitute a legitimate star. Right. right? I mean, right now we would say exactly. a birth certificate. Is a birth certificate a halachic star? You know, so exactly right. What type of, what, I mean, that's, you know, that is a good fact about like things that, um, you know, the whole science of, I don't have to tell you this, but of, uh, what is it about, like, um, what's that called? Uh, forensic evidence, yeah. right? When it was first introduced, everybody thought it was like a joke, right? Obviously, nothing means anything except an eyewitness. You're going to go prove something based on a fingerprint or something, right? <laughs> right? So, halacha never got to the point where it used non-direct testimony, and you know. For that. Right. I'm just saying, so, yeah. you know, how would it deal with those realities nowadays? DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. There's no halachic basis for right? Could you say, could you sort of work that into some existing concept like a chazaka presumption that if there, you know, but right. I mean, so that's important to know that, but again, sometimes we use those evidence to presume who committed the act, not just to presume certain facts, right? To use DNA evidence or a blood test to determine who somebody's father is or whatever is different than the evidence about committing the crime, mm-hmm. which, again, here, here we're not, as I said before, the evidence of committing the crime always had to be direct testimony. Right. This is about establishing facts and evidence, you know, ahead of time. Okay. Um, Let's take a look. Now we switch we, a significant switching of gears. Yes. Research about the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. Yes. Exactly. That's the whole problem. That eyewitness testimony is. I mean, that's the irony, right? That we did not accept initially forensic evidence, and now we know that it's actually, you know, much better, much more reliable. I mean, obviously there's always presumptions, you know, and things other possible interpretations. But right, exactly. Um, all right. Now we really get to the final Mishnayot in Kiddushin, which is a significant break from some of the earlier discussion, which has to do with the laws of Yichud. 
about a man and woman being in seclusion um, and a concern, you know, they, they're not allowed to be because they might have sex. Um, and the interesting thing is you could have sort of connected it somehow to issues about, I don't know, Yichus or whatever, maybe she's a wife of a Kohen or who knows what the case might be. But that's not the concern. The concern goes back to, you know, the more normal concerns of Masechus Kiddushin, which interestingly, you know, the general point, by the way, of, uh, of uh, you know, question about sex outside of marriage never really got addressed. I know some people are aware it's actually Machokis Rishonin because the Torah has these whole cases of a Pelegesh of concubines. With, now, there's a question about how institutionalized was concubinage, how much did it require some act of, act of maybe Kiddushin without a Ksuva, some formal act in order to make it whatever. But um, Rambam basically says sex outside of marriage is, is forbidden, um, whereas Ramban says that if it's actually, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, um, um, what's what I'm looking for, monogamous, and type of, you know, committed and monogamous, it's actually not forbidden, assuming the woman isn't a nida. Um, so you could imagine that the yichud would be a concern about that, okay, but actually, as we'll see, the ye primary concerns about yichud are concerns about when the woman is, you know, not just single, but like she's forbidden for more weighty reasons. She's a married woman, or she's a, a relative, Okay, which is interesting. What, you can't, brother and sister can't be together? You know, how, how does it really apply to relatives? I mean, mother and son obviously can be together, so there's a whole question about whether it applies to siblings or not. Okay, but let's say she's a married woman, would be one case. It doesn't apply to a man whose woman is Anita. Their right husband and wife can share a bedroom together if the woman's Anita. So basically, but it would apply to a un, um, uh, an unmarried woman who's Anita. So the basic classic cases of Yichud really are like a single woman who's a nida and a married woman. Now, in the time of the Gemara, single women nowadays, women before they get married, don't go to the mikvah. So basically, so the laws of Yichud would, would naturally apply to, you know, men and single women because they're all, uh, you know, single women would be a nida. But in the time of the Gemara, single women would go to the mikvah, mm-hmm. you know, if they wanted to, to handle truma and other types mm-hmm. of things, just for tumatara, everybody would go to the mikvah for any reason that they were tamay. So actually, the Gemara sort of says that the Isra of Yichud with a single woman who's not a nida was actually a much a later takana. But the prime Isra of, of Yichud was really with married women and a woman who was not a man's wife who was a nida. Anyway, so that's interesting that again, I mean, I, where, I don't know where else it would get discussed, but what exactly is it doing in Maseches Kiddushin? Maybe again, because it's about another man's wife. Okay, but anyway, that's what the end of the Maseches focuses on, is about cases of Yichud. So let's take a look at the Mishnah. Um, Lo adam im nashim. A man should not be in seclusion with two women. Um, aval um, even with two women, certainly not with one woman. Um, but one woman can be in seclusion with two men. That's strange. What's the difference? Presumably, if there's a third party, let the third party be the chaperone. What difference does it make if the third party is a woman or the third party is a man? Rabbi Shimon Omer, so that's what Reb Shimon says. Yes, as long as there's three people, we're not afraid that two of them are going to go off and have sex. Okay, now, here there's a very big question here about how to read this next line, whether this is a continuation of Rebbe Shimon or it's a separate line. I'm going to read it like Tosvos, because uh, it'll just keep things clearer and it's more consistent with the way we paskin. So Tosvos adds a vav here. Now, not relating to Rebbe Shimon's position. First, it was a position is, 
is a third is a third is a third party, a second woman enough to remove yichud. Now here's another thing that will remove yichud. If a man is with his wife, Yashen Imahim takes up the Vav after the moves the Vav. Ubizman Ishto Imo Yashen Iman Bapundiki. If a man is with two women but one of them is his wife, okay, then he can or three women and one of them is his wife, whatever, but even even two women, then he can go ahead and they can all be share, you know, sleeping together in an inn because we assume that his wife will keep an eye on him. Alright? So one exception to the laws of Yichud is that a man is with his wife. Um, now, um, a man can uh, have, be together with his wife or his daughter. Notice it's all from the male perspective. His wife, that's right, his mother or his daughter. And can even sleep together with them, you know, without, uh, you know, flesh to flesh. But that's only when the, uh, when, when the children are, when like he has a boy, is still a small boy, he can sleep with his mother, or when his daughter is, a, is small. Once, once the child becomes an adult, what exactly an adult is, they can share a bed, but they have to be in some type of clothing. They have to be in night clothes. They can't actually be without naked together in bed. You know, which is on the one hand, obviously, you know, you have to. Uh, first of all, they didn't have a lot of beds in those days. They had to share beds, right? And uh, you know, and uh, obviously, you're not going to answer yichud between a father and a child. On the other hand, like you know, there's something a little disturbing because we are aware about cases of incest. Right, but uh, but you know, but on the other hand, what are you going to say? You know, father can't be alone with his daughter, right? So I mean, you know, so you do understand these rulings. Actually, becomes very very challenging is uh, dealing with the halachot of yichud and nigiya in cases of adopted children. You know, there's some post game. I don't understand how they think these kids are supposed to grow up normal. That say that you can't be have yichud or you can't, you know, you can't be affectionate with your adopted children of the other sex. Right, isn't that a, right? I mean, Baruch Hashem, they're posting Pasuk and otherwise, but what? Because they're like any other person that you're not related to. Uh, you know, so... A child, right. So they obviously, you know... Uh, so I, anyway, there's like... Uh, um, you did something, I didn't something about somebody else. We were discussing it though when we did... Okay, anyway, but I can give you some sources on that. Anyway, but so what we have here though is these laws of Yuchad. I should say two other things just, which don't come up directly in the Gemara, but I should just mention at the outset about Yichud. One is, is the concern of Yichud, I'll say three things here, is the concern of Yichud, number one, of consensual sex, or, excuse me, of rape, or even of consensual sex? Okay? Generally, the presumption is, is that it's a concern of both. Okay? But the post can deal with certain types of scenarios. Maybe you don't have to be concerned about one, but you'd be concerned about another. Like some cases about, what, what do you do if there's like very you know, uh, um, um, uh, secular law around rape or whatever, you know, anyway, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that people don't get away with it anyway, but, you know, but would that address some of these Yichud concerns? And the basic consensus of the post-game is that these are concerns not about just limited to rape, but they also include concerns about consensual sex, which seems clear from all the Gemaras. There's no distinction about those. Um, the other related issue, which I find fascinating, is are these everything here said from the male perspective like most of halacha is said from the male perspective but is the concern just about the man or is it even, even a concern about the woman is it a concern that the man might go ahead and initiate sex with the woman or would it even be in the reverse now you might say what difference does it make right as long as they can't be private together who cares who we're concerned about one scenario that comes up in the post game is let's say they're staying in a um, 
in a uh, you know in, in, in a shared apartment or let's say I don't know in an office building and there's a locked door between them okay but um, but the question is will that help so how could, why would it help somebody can always open up the door right that's the question who cares if the door is locked presumably if I'm a third party has the key presumably if I'm in behind the locked door I can open up the locked door right so the question so some say ah but if it is the woman behind the locked door and the man doesn't have the key then it's okay because we're not concerned that the woman is going to initiate. We're only concerned that the man is going to initiate. Right? So you get that scenario. So if the woman is behind the locked door, there's no way the man can, you know, can initiate the situation. You know, uh, the Tzitzah Eliezer disagrees. He says, he says, he says, I looked high and low, and I cannot find any evidence that this is only a concern about the man and not a concern about the woman. It's like any other area of halacha. We should presume it applies equally to men and to women. Although he actually is lenient about the locked door, regardless of whose door is locked. Because he just thinks then they're fundamentally in separate rooms it really doesn't matter but he says as a principle right that's the question are we just concerned about the man as the initiator or are we even concerned potentially as the woman as the initiator the third issue I want to just raise as a conceptual issue to put on the table is the question of um, of and this gets to the locked door case um, is it that yichud to prevent to say it's not yichud it has to be that it's not possible for them to have sex if they don't want to even if, if they would want to or do we have to just say they're not in a situation the concern isn't that they're going to want to have sex consciously because then nobody's going to they're not going to follow yichud yichud if you're trying to do something who's paying attention to yichud yichud anyway yeah. the concern is the concern is that you're not going to be able to resist temptation and therefore, the primary goal of this is to avoid situations of, of, of temptation. So the Navgamina would be exactly this case of a door between them. A lot of posting would say, the door between them, big deal, they could just open up the door. Nothing is stopping them from having sex. Whereas the Tzitzelianza says, we're not presuming that they're starting by planning on having sex. We're starting by assuming that they might be tempted. If they're in different rooms with a door between them and they remain in different rooms, so they're not in a situation where they're being tempted. The fact that they could open up the door make it a different, that's a different story. Okay, so it's a very interesting question about whether we have to make it not possible or just make it a situation in which they're not, you know, they're reasonably not going to be tempted. All right, anyway, so those are some of the issues around the Yichim. Let's take a look at the Gemara. So the first thing the Gemara wants to know is the position of the Tanakama that um, two men is o- with one woman is okay, but not the reverse. My Taima, since women are more easy to be seduced, which therefore means that one man with two women, he might be able to seduce both of them, he might be able to seduce one and have the other one not object. But here is some sense that men are more in control of their passions, you know, or, uh, I don't know, better moral fiber, whatever the presumption is, but it sounds like they're also just, you know, of, of more strong-willed, and therefore, if, if it's two men, the guy who's not party to it is going to, be the, is going to object and is going to prevent it, and is going to sort of, but if it's two women, you'll more be able to get away with it. That's the presumption the Gemara makes, which isn't the same as the question of who is the initiator, it's just a, uh, uh, but it's, I mean, it's related, but it's not the same. That's why the Tanakhama assumes that one man with two women is no good. The question then becomes, what about one man with three women, right? What would, according to that, would you never get out of Yichud until you had two men, according to that? Or could there be enough women that it would not be a problem? That's discussed in the post Okay, Minani Mili, where do you get this whole idea of Yichud? 
Where do you know it from? Then your your brother, your mother's son, seduces you, and this is about talking about Avodah Zarah. Why does it say your mother's son? Would your, only your mother's son try to tr- seduce you to Avodah Zarah, not your father's son? To tell you, there's an idea of Ben Ain, the son of a mother. But the son can be in seclusion with his mother. Ben Av. But all other forbidden arayot, you can't be in yichud together with. So we learn out the Easter yichud from the fact that a brother is described as your mother's son. And that teaches you that the only secluded scenario the Torah allows for is a son and his mother, but not other, other, other relatives, which, by the way, makes it sound like siblings would be not acceptable, which is a whole discussion in the postgame. Anyway, this sounds quite far-fetched, okay? And therefore, I think most of us would reasonably assume this is an asmachta, but based on other Gemaras, you know, another, other Gemaras say, Yichudor Raitahi, which again, some posts can read to mean it's a remez in the Torah, it's an asmachta, but overwhelmingly, most poskim presume that this is really seen as a Torah din, Yichud. The one case that's seen as rabbinic is the case I told you before, Yichud and a pnuya, Yichud, a man and a single woman who's not a nida, okay? But many, many Rishonim and poskim assume that it's Doraita, even though I think reasonably we would conclude that it's an asmachta. Right. So so you're saying but that would be evidence that it's Doraisa or not. The fact that not that calls it a remez. Yeah. Right, I agree. The fact that it calls it a remez, the fact that it's a pretty far fetched read of the Pasuk, you know, but it is interesting as far as what halachic weight it's given. Let's read one more line. Um, okay, that's the drasha, that's the remez. But what's the simple sense of the pasuk? Why does it speak about being seduced by your mother's brother to commit a vodazara and not by your father's brother? I mean, by, by your mother's son and not your father's son. So, Lomi The pasuk is telling you it goes without saying. Lomi ben av When the Torah is saying, "Don't listen to your brother who's trying to seduce you to do avodazara." It wouldn't have to tell you that if it was your brother on your father's side. You'd be more inclined not to listen to him. Because you know your brother on your father's side is competing with you for your father's inheritance. So he might be trying to get you killed, right? Get you to worship of Avodah Zarah, get you out of the picture. So it goes without saying, don't listen to your brother on your father's side. Elafiu ben Ain, even your brother on your mother's side, that's not competing with you for your father's inheritance. To most sunny lay, and you can't assume that he hates you. Eimatzayfa, you might think, oh, he's got a good idea. Let's go be over to Avodah Zarah. Maybe I should listen to him. Kamash Milan, that you should not listen to him. Okay. So anyway, we will pick up with this tomorrow in terms of the parameters of Yichud of one man and two women as opposed to uh, one woman and two men. Okay.